Welcome to The Pot of Gold, where we talk all things precious metals and their markets. Today, we analyze why gold has fallen despite the recent US bank runs. We look at how the Fed was cornered and had no choice but to raise rates so it didn't spook the market, and why banks will be forced to raise rates, creating more pressure this tightening cycle. I'm your host, Shay Russell, and joining me today is Nick Frappel, ABC Refineries Global Head of Institutional Markets. Nick, how are you, mate? I'm extremely well, Shay, and great to see you. So much has happened since we last spoke. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so it works out. It's been 19 days since we last spoke. The gold prices uh, rallied up nearly 10%, although it's come off a little bit. And there's been bank runs in the US. Yeah. Absolutely. And a, and a failure, or rather the, the transfer of ownership of one globally systemic institution in Switzerland to its arch rival, creating a monster of a bank uh, relative to the size of the Swiss economy. So yeah, huge amounts going on. It'll be interesting to try and distinguish the, uh, the wheat from the chaff on that front. Yes, look, now I am looking uh, forward to getting into essentially our bank run conversation in the second half of today's podcast. Uh, but first and foremost, we've, we've got to talk about gold. Now, as I mentioned before, gold has been uh, on an incredible run, quite incidentally, since the last day we record a po- uh, recorded a podcast on the 9th of March. Now, we've seen the yellow metal uh, move from uh, 1816 to up above $2,000 per ounce. But at the time of recording this video, it has dipped back down into the 1950s. So let's take that technical lens of yours and let's um, let's talk about positioning. What is managed money telling us about the, uh, the gold market right now? Uh, and then after this, we'll get into some technical indicators and see if your the technical backdrop for gold has changed. Yeah, sure. So looking at the managed money longs again, um, not surprisingly, the longs have increased um, fairly steadily to 12.5 million ounces. Um, and that's of Tuesday, the 21st of March, because uh, wonderfully the CFTC has caught up. So that we're now looking at up-to-date um, positioning uh, data. Management of shorts, managed money shorts, about 4.4 million. And that's down from a recent high uh, of 8.9 million, round about the last time we spoke. Seven, Tuesday, the 7th of March, it was 8.9. Pretty significant short covering. Um, three million slug of that took place at a VWAP of eighteen sixty seven. So it was a little bit of uh, um, sort of blood in the streets when uh, people uh, ran, 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 ran away from that position. Um, ETF length worldwide stands at ninety two point nine three million ounces, and just to put that into context, ETF positioning is lower by about a million ounces than it was at the start of the year, despite a shock to the banking system in the middle of the month and various changes which we'll discuss uh, in the futures-based expectations around US policy rates. Um, Positioning overall, if you want to look at, think about it in sort of holistically, positioning overall is still pretty light, way off the uh, highs uh, in ETF form. And also, if you look at the average net positioning over since, say, July 2016, um, net positioning is still substantially under that level. So the positive aspect of that is that you could say it's not a crowded space. People have not piled in. People have joined lately, but they have not piled in to the extent where you see kind of you know, historically um, different or you know historically high uh, weightings in gold. So that's that's where we are at the moment in positioning wise. 
That's quite interesting because it was one heck of a rally. So what I'm hearing is that ETF length hasn't extended and managed money longs isn't at historical highs, even though gold has cracked over $2,000 per ounce for the second time in 12 months. Yeah, that's a good point because, and, and this is true of other markets um, in the last sort of that, that three-week period, is that you've seen pretty poor, um, you, you know, there's obviously a fear-driven element to uh, a lot of these market moves, if you look at rates and if you look at, you know, what we'll touch upon later, both in rates world uh, and short-term rates and so on, been a lot of different, um, quite big moves and quite big changes in expectations. Uh, looking at some of the liquidity indicators around rates, for example, indicates that at least in some of that space, um, liquidity briefly went back to kind of GFC kind of levels. And Gold covered a lot of ground. Um, there was, you know, a good there was a good slug of buying, but it covered a, a lot of ground because people didn't really want to be short in an environment where there was so much news flow uh, post the demise of um, Silicon Valley Bank and then very quickly Signature, uh, First Republic, and then of course um, all the news around Credit Suisse and all that kind of whole swirl of news flow meant that gold covered a lot of ground very quickly, even if it didn't make any kind of new high in terms of positioning. All right, Nick. Now I want to talk price targets. Now the gold bull in me can't help but get a little bit excited when we do see such a strong rally. Uh, but tell me now with your trusty forms of analysis, both the Ichimoku cloud is one of them uh, and point and figure is just another one in your toolkit. What sort of targets are you seeing come through and has this uh, short, sharp rally changed uh, the technical picture for gold? Uh, yes and no. Um, probably worthwhile saying just where, given that this is a, you know, perhaps we're looking at stuff like, you know, fortnight to fortnight. I know it's been just over a fortnight since our last chat. Um, but just a reminder that, you know, we don't make huge calls um, on on these podcasts. Generally, we just tend to remind what some of the bigger targets are. But what's what's interesting is if you look at where gold went up to last week, just over 2000 US dollars, as you mentioned, uh, per ounce. Actually, a lot of those targets, on the as they evolved over the previous fortnight, um, a lot of them clustered and terminated around about the high 1990s and 2008-2011 level. Uh, and sure enough, there was a fair bit of um, perhaps distribution or whatever going on around about that that price level. And we've then seen targets emerge to the downside. So that really big uh, push upwards kind of has lost a degree of its uh, energy and upward momentum at that just just above 2000. Um, so where now? And in that sort of distributing pattern uh, in the sort of, you know, 1980, 2005-ish band, what you're seeing now is a lot of targets coming out to the downside. Um, now, uh, just a day or so ago, we had you know, targets emerging to 1960 and 1930. 1960 was very rapidly achieved. 1946, I think, roughly was the low overnight. Then the prices moved back up again. And just in very, very short term, I'm talking about really kind of intra-week stuff. So it might even have, some of it might even have happened by the time we publish. Um, we got scope uh, for a small bounce back up to 87 or 88. But those bigger targets um, are now down to sort of, yeah, again, like I said, 30, just over 1,900. 
1882, I think, thereabouts. And if you look at where the supports are, uh, support levels, um, the support at 1934, although I don't think particularly strong one, 1907, um, coming from sort of weekly Ichimoku uh, lines and so on. So um, having moved so far, so fast, it's it's quite reasonable to expect the price to to move a bit lower. And of course, the news action or the news uh, context around that is that uh, the market is sort of post-Credit Suisse not seen a huge amount of, um, of, 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 you know, subsequent sort of, you know, fear. And hopefully that kind of goes away because it's not really uh, desirable. But also you're seeing uh, rates being sold off, U.S. yields going higher, dollar going higher. And that's, that's, uh, that's, that's a sort of uh, um, basically creating a, creating a sort of um, a more favorable, well, more, uh, kind of more of a return to where we were before the bank shock. I think one of the interesting things, and this is just, I wouldn't say it's anecdotal entirely because it's happening, but it's all about the mood mood of the market, if you like, is you're already getting people reflecting on just how much of this is liquidity and how much of it is solvency. And um, some, you know, for example, I think Bill Winters was quoted yesterday in a, uh, in a yesterday, or um, he was talking about, uh, just a quick take on some of what we've seen with these uh, bank uh, failures or the uh, dis- the resolution of of credit Credit Suisse, and he sort of said that you know he he, he was he thought that very likely an analysis of these banks would show that they were actually um, you know solvent entities, and that's perhaps you know when people start talking like that and people look at it and say well you know liquidity coverage ratio. Is um, looks pretty good in European banks and so on. They start sort of taking, sort of maybe taking a more measured take. Um, now these are fairly free, febrile times in terms of people's anxiety. So you know what could sound um, cool, calm, and collected and rational right now could sound uh, very different tomorrow morning if something happens overnight. But nonetheless, there's been a sort of a dialing back of the tension and people um, looking looking back at what's happened and, of course. Not that this is necessarily the venue for it, but one thing, one thing that I think we can predict better than perhaps anything, better than the gold price even, is just how much litigation is probably in the pipeline as people litigate and dispute over the seniority of certain um, sort of instruments, um, you know, bank eighty-one bonds and so on, um, you know, because already there's certain there's certainly a certain amount of um, anger and upset about whether uh, equity holders were privileged over um, particular bondholders. That's a hugely complex area. Um, it, it sounds like it shouldn't be because you should always expect the bondholders to be senior to equity holders. Um, but there's a whole lot of Basel III um, and bank resolution stuff going on in there. So um, some of that's, that, that gets pretty, um, pretty complicated in the heat, of the heat of the moment. But for sure, there's going to be a lot of dispute about how much of this was liquidity and how much of this was genuinely um, a solvency issue um, when, once the dust is settled. So those are the targets and a little bit of a, a lecture about, <laughs> about banks as well. 
Uh, look, I actually think uh, we'll find ourselves probably discussing those topics more in depth over the coming months as they reveal themselves. Now, Nick, unlike gold, silver's managed to hold on to the majority of its gains since the March 10 rally. Uh, tell me, what is the fast money telling us about this market right now? I think the big thing here is that what you're looking at is some really, really substantial short covering in silver. So just looking at positioning as it is now, uh, management money length in silver, 153 million ounces more or less as of 21st of March. Manage money shorts, 154 and a third million. Um, that gives you net positioning of just, just over a million ounces short. Um, that's about 72 million ounces of short covering since March the 7th. So pretty significant action there was about short shorts buying back. Um, Longs added 14 million ounces. So of the total buying, um, roughly one in five ounces was longs um, adding and the balance was shorts getting out. And I think that explains part of the story because once the shorts had reduced their uh, position um, or in aggregate had reduced the position to perhaps a level they were more comfortable with, and they, they did that at a VWAP, a volume weighted average of about 2019 US dollars and 2022 US dollars. That sort of took some of the momentum and the upward momentum out of the out of the rally. Then you've got this fallback, but the positive side is that if you look at it from like a weekly Ichimoku Cloud perspective, uh, silver's still above that. Um, so it, it's re-entered a, I mean, had a really choppy time, but it has re-entered a bullish phase. Um, so that's positive. But I think you're looking at something, you've got to look at it in the context of um, a market that's been much, much more driven by, by short covering. And if I look at, um, you know, okay, actually, you know, you could argue that, you know, short covering has been a bigger feature in, in gold relative, relative to um, actual buying from uh, increasing increasing length, increasing length since the seventh of March, been about uh, two point three million ounces, very roughly. Um, whereas uh, you know short covering has been what four and a half, but then, nonetheless the ratio of short covering in in silver is much much more noticeable, much more noticeable. What are some interim price targets over the next fortnight people can look for? Look, technical targets on the upside, we've got uh, 2350 and 2380 in US dollars. The volatile price action is obviously kicking out targets on both sides. So downside is 2260 and uh, 2215, 2245, there's a bunch of them. Um, Support, I'd have to say uh, 2225, this is basis weekly at Jamaica Cloud, and 2136. Resistance, I'm going to call around about the 2360, 2370 level. All right, Nick, now we're going to move into, I guess, the meatier part of today's conversation, and that is the events of the past 19 days. Uh, we've had a Silicon Valley bank collapse, SVB bank collapse, uh, First Republic showed signs of wobbling, Credit Suisse, which I think my entire finance career has always shown signs of wobbling. It's always been in crisis. Um, and there's been a couple of other smaller banks as well that I've left out there. Now, Tell me, the Fed came out last week and still increased rates 25 basis points. Now, I know there was some speculation in the lead up to it that there's no way the Fed would increase rates when the 
you know, the American market in particular was facing another banking crisis similar to the GFC, or at least that's how it was being reported on at the time. How has this uh, bank run and the collapsing of banks changed the Fed's view? And also to something we continue to talk about here is the narrative versus what the market's actually telling us. Are you seeing a divide or are you seeing these two things reaching the same conclusion now? There's a fair bit of divergence, actually, and in terms of the sort of bank shock on rates, and I think I think this is kind of, to be fair, a very different. To I see it as a different scenario to the GFC. Um, it, it's got obviously certain characteristics where people have, um, you know, react on the basis of fear and rationality, and so on. Um, sometimes the rational thing to do is to behave irrationally when you're concerned about um, the value of your. Um, you know your deposit, uh, but nonetheless, there are very specific things, um, particularly around uh, Silicon Valley and a whole host of issues around the nature of their deposit base. Um, and um, well, in essence, what is common to a great many banks, um, and naturally, because this comes out of the sort of you know maturity transformation they do, is is rate risk. And what we're seeing is the outcome of. Uh, very rapidly changing rates markets over the course of 2022. Uh, and then in 2023, you're seeing a, um, a sort of sudden reappraisals. And the realization the, the US economy certainly has been, and we do have to kind of drive a little bit some degree in, with the aid of the rear, rear view mirror here, the real economy in the US is looking pretty strong, very tightly market um, and core uh, CPI and PCE looking uh, looking strong and looking pretty steadfast, which is creating a real dilemma for the Fed. Um, what uh, what we're seeing the, in in the in the first instance, if you look at expectations and you look at where the pathway of rates is, that the rates pathway, according to futures based expectations, very quickly pivoted to lower, having been um, drawn higher in the end of towards the end of February, much higher terminal rate expectations, which we thought were, I certainly thought were kind of valid and not too unexpected. Um, possible, and possibly this is partly a case of sort of illiquidity. Uh, the that that swing in the futures-based expectations was very violent uh, in terms of both the expectations around lower rates so for example <clears throat> and 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 the onset of, of rate cuts in for the fed funds rate actually if you look at um, the fed funds rate expectation for say december so you kind of denoise some of this um, 4.21% as opposed to um, you know 455 at the beginning of january and it was probably higher uh, somewhere in the middle of that given the given the sort of the expectations of a pivot to the upside in any case going back to the essential question is there a divergence certainly quite a few economists think that the rates pathway should not be as mild as should not be as reappraised as it has been by the futures market they think they think the futures market is Perhaps um, overdone the expectations of both the lower terminal, the, the terminal rate peaking around here, and then um, uh, sort of the onset of rate cuts. Uh, obviously, you know, one tends to look at the market and say, "Well, those are people with skin in the game," so kind of tend to take their 
their their word on this um, more seriously than perhaps um, just sort of you know mere commentators. Um, so th- there's certainly a divergence there, um, and some more nuanced commentators, of course, in the press have said, well, it's possible for both to be right or the Fed to be right um, with expectations that yes, rates will go lower over the next year, but the Fed waiting, um, uh, you know, again, data dependent, waiting for um, perhaps one more, one more 25%, 25 basis point. Interesting, the, the debate between 25, 50 and zero, I think was very much a 50 and 25 decision. Um, couldn't do 50, but couldn't do nothing either. Um, and so it would have been a perhaps a worse signal to have said, "Hey, we're not cutting." That would have really that would have looked as though they were spooked at a time when you don't want them to look spooked. Um, there is a flip side to this, and I was talking about this last week. That there are a couple of other things at play here. If you look at the um, bank term sort of financing facility, the bank, the Fed has very quickly swung into play. That is effectively a form of QE where the banks, any bank that is <clears throat> feels under stress, can pledge a variety of paper of different qualities to uh, the Fed at, and get that paper sort of treated as though it was trading at par, whatever it's trading at today. You know, it could be trading at somewhere terrible. Um, and pledge it to the Fed, and they get money in return. That term facility is valid until March of next year. We'll know how many people are, or how much has been pledged and how much money has been extended by the Fed pretty much on a weekly basis. Uh, we won't necessarily know who's been active in that facility until the end of the uh, facility in a, you know, 11 and a half months' time. Um, that is, from a monetary point of view, analogous to QE. So that is an easing, and that's positive for gold. And if you take that QE itself is positive for gold. However, what is going on at a more general level within the banking system equates to a tightening of financial conditions. So there's two things going on in opposition to each other, and it will go on and be a feature in 2023. In fact, the tightening of financial conditions may well be a much bigger part of the story than the QE impact, if you like, of the um, this sort of term lending facility. So. That is partly arising because banks will banks need to attract and retain uh, short-term deposits, liquid deposits, which are liabilities on their balance sheet. And to do that, they need to compete with other liquid um, uh, liquid instruments. Uh, you know, there's a whole universe of them, and the bank uh, is in competition. Banks generally are in competition with that, but that competition is heightened and already well, for quite a few months now. Uh, so, for example, you're seeing bank certificate of deposits, certificates deposit um, yielding way more than they used to, um, in an effort to 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 um, attract attract uh, funds. Um, I think that'll become even more entrenched. And that'll lead to a tightening of it lead to a tightening of financial conditions, generally, uh, which is, on the whole, pretty negative for the economy. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, you'll see that um, bank bank margins generally. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll probably take a little bit of a hit there. You'd so what I'm hearing here, Nick, and I think this is an interesting viewpoint to get across, uh, that is that the, the tightening environment isn't being driven by the Fed anymore. It's also coming from the banking sector as well. 
Yes, it is. And, and not just in conditions in the banking sector, um, not just pass through from tighter cash rates or tighter Fed funds, uh, whichever policy rate you choose. Um, that is also that is um, that is something that's that's kind of coming from conditions within the banking sector overall, um, and not not unreasonably so. But I think one thing as well is look, you know, things aren't over yet, and the impact of this sort of kind of concern over very sharp concern over the stability of um, banks and the wider system. You know, I think it's very easy to kind of overstate it, but of course we've seen um, very quick action by the Swiss National Bank to um, achieve a resolution over Credit Suisse, um, and obviously a sort of much more minor uh, players in the U.S. system. You know, generally we've thought that banks are quite well capitalized um, post GFC because. Um, with a whole bunch of things that have taken place at sort of Basel three level and so on, um, but you know there's clearly kind of like gaps, gaps in there, and 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 liquidity even with decent liquidity coverage ratios, high quality liquid assets, um, and um, a couple of other acronyms which have mo- momentarily um, floated out of my memory, uh, but um, those all of those things generally have put up some pretty good moats, but um, nonetheless, when you're when people are panicking, um, you know there's a good case for saying that you know a week before whatever the profitability conditioning, pro- 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 sorry, profitability condition of um, credit Suisse, the fact is it looked like it had pretty big moats in terms of um, core uh, tier one uh, capital and all those other sort of criteria. So it's a really tough one to call. But I think the, I think that things probably are on, on the sort of the positive leg here at, at, at any rate. Uh, that's quite a refreshing take, uh, Nick. Obviously, the past 19 days was quite chaotic from a finance news point of view. And uh, we all know that there are dramatic headlines out there that don't always um, provide useful analysis. So I, I think that's a good take to take away. And I did love your comment before that you didn't think that this was a GFT, uh, GFC 2, uh, 2.0. And a lot of my criticism around that is around the headlines are that people are too quick to name the most recent disaster they can think of and align it to that to understand what's going on. <laughs> yeah, that, that's I think that's uh, that that's probably that's that's probably catches catches. All right, it very Nick, well. I want to touch on some something quite quickly, and this is the Australian in both of us, and it is our uh, troubled commodity-driven currency, the Australian dollar. Now, the Aussie dollar has hasn't fared this well. Uh, this year, I know it got close to 70 cents uh, in early February, but it really hasn't been able to hold on to these gains. And I believe at the time of making this podcast, it's sitting around that 66 cents when compared to the US dollar. Uh, tell me, is what is this reflecting? Uh, and do you happen to have any technical analysis on hand that can give us some direction of where the currency is going over the next fortnight? Well, to answer in reverse, not as much as I'd like, uh, just for sort of timing considerations. So maybe we should make a point of perhaps addressing that um, in the next podcast and sort of bringing a little bit more um, information to the Aussie dollar discussion um, than I have at the moment. But I think largely the weakness in the in the Aussie is, you know, partly, um, uh, you know, again, we, last time we spoke, I think we talked about the 
National People's Congress having a, a sort of fairly um, low-key uh, take on 2023 growth in mainland China. Uh, and that is um, that certainly didn't help the Aussie then. Uh, looking forward, probably um, a negative outlook in terms of um, sort of perhaps a more recessionary or weaker, weaker growth um, state uh, for exports going forward. Um, and I think in terms of targets, look, you know, we're pretty close to some fairly, you know, th- there's not a lot of targets in certainly in the short term going, uh, you know, from here, but certainly the sort of 66, uh, 64 and a half level. Um, the rebound, uh, I think last week, well, uh, created a target back up to so sixty nine, but again, you know, not a. That, I mean, that's a that's a substantial move from where we are. But as you said, you know, it's not even not even point seven. Um, so I think there's there's probably sort of more the international outlook um, than anything else that's 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 driving that. It perhaps more in perhaps a you know more more detail next time, and perhaps look at some of the positioning, and perhaps you know some maybe have have a little bit of a. Uh, uh, a harder chat around sort of supports and resistances and where we'd really expect things to pan out. Rather than have our key takeaways today, I'd actually like to draw on something that you spoke at uh, during the week. And this is uh, a presentation you recently gave to Bloomberg. It was gold and the global economy, an element driving the gold price in 2023. Uh, Now, not everybody gets to be invited to discuss the precious metal with Bloomberg, Nick. Uh, Tell me, what what were your key points uh, during this presentation? Yeah, no, true. Thank you. Yeah, for bringing that up. It was, um, it was, uh, it was, it was, uh, challenging but fun. Um, yeah, look, the key points I made were sort of in terms of uh, thematics looking forward to looking forward in 2023. Um, I, I, I talked about um, the likely effects of the Bank of Japan's um, switching away from yield curve control, uh, which I think is broadly penciled in or expected anyway by, I guess, you know, other people uh, in second half of this year and how that would uh, sort of play out. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we can't really necessarily figure out just because the complexity of, uh, you know, how that's going to affect. But I, 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 I took it as a positive for gold and probably broadly positive for the yen, um, but also that might have it does contain in itself some macro risks around um, the banking banking system there possibly um certainly that japanese inflation was appeared to, and wage settlements appear to be running hot enough to justify a departure from yield curve control that was one thing um spoke a little bit about the um reopening in china and how that uh, certainly seemed to be positive in terms of gold demand um but again uh you know some issues around uh, again, the ever-present property sector, um, not terribly high expectations out of um, from the National People's Congress, and also concerns around local government financing, uh, and and that's inter- inter- intimately related with the property market, of course. Um, and then I did talk looking further and affa- further ahead, um, just in terms of sort of macro themes uh, about the. Uh, U.S. debt ceiling and how that was, um, one can't really say how it's going to play out, but you can imagine that 
uh, absent anything else, it's going to be a very, very long and difficult argument and a lot of wrangling um, to hopefully get to the point that they really need to get to quite quickly, which is agreement. Um, and central bank buying, I discussed whether that was something that was going to um, happen again. One, one of the interesting things about central bank buying, which was really intense last year, it was one in four tons, I think, of total demand. Uh, and we saw uh, MAS buying again, in buying reporters buying in January. So, you know, that, that there are hints that central bank official sector buying could just be uh, rolling on as before, is that central bank buying tends to weaken the relationship between real rates um, as proxied by the 10-year tips. Treasury inflation protected securities. That's been a really, really good factor variable in people looking at modeling the gold price. But actually, the central bank buying, which was intense during the last three quarters of last year, that took place when real rates were flying. So, of course, it kind of upended the regression or the strength of that regression. Um, so now, like the R squared for that or whatever is, is way lower than it used to be. If you look at it over a 20 year period, it's got a great like great uh, sort of regression um, numbers and the the it's a reasonably pronounced curve with a great R squared. But if you sample it over last year, it's like, mm, okay, maybe this isn't a great factor variable for modeling the gold price anymore. It'll come back. But the question is, is if central bank buying carries on, it's kind of like ir irrespective of what's happening in real rates world, will that you know, diminish the quality of that that modeling. So that's I know maybe that's uh, that's certainly the thing that I, I noticed. But those are the big those are the big sort of well bigish themes that I, I I brought to at least part of that discussion. And they're all generally positive for gold, by the way. Look, that uh, is a great uh, short summary of what was, I know, uh, a quite intense presentation for you. Now, Nick, we have run over time today. I'm very grateful for your time. But before we say our goodbyes and our thank yous, uh, I just want to let everybody know that there has been some requests. A few listeners have requested if we could do a, an AMA and ask me anything for Nick. Now, thankfully, Spotify has introduced a function. So we basically will be able to start uh, receiving your questions. Now, let me work that out. And next week, I will be able to put a call out to the audience to start an AMA thread. Um, so start thinking about it. A lot it. of interest from Switzerland in that regard, I think, haven't we? We certainly have. I believe Switzerland uh, has been quite passionate about uh, getting up and the running. AMA so issue. thankfully Spotify has done the hard work for me. Now, so think about your questions in the meantime. But Nick, before we sign off, uh, may there be no banking failures in between now and the next 14 days when we speak? Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> no fun for anyone, whatever the uh, headlines imply. All right, Nick, it's been a great chat today. Very in-depth. I appreciate your technical lens and your macro thesis that you presented today. Thanks for being here. It's been great. Cheers, Shay. Thanks very much. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to get a better understanding of the technical indicator Nick uses, the Ichimoku Cloud. It's available on most trading platforms. Alternatively, you can check the show notes over at abcrefinery.com forward slash podcast. Here you can sign up to receive more information from Nick Frappel, including his monthly report where he incorporates technical analysis alongside macro market commentary. That's all from us today at ABC Refinery. We look forward to seeing you next time.